Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, of 3773's Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, it's an honor to bring back a friend of the program and really one of the most accomplished and uh, legendary musicians, uh, you know, producers and uh, arrangers. He was a guy that... Uh, was given assignments uh, with his brothers in the studio. They'd have essentially a limited amount of time to cut one tune, but ultimately uh, their legacy is carved out in not just the quantity of the music they've made, but also the quality of the music they've made, and it continues on today. Dennis Coffey, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Good to be back. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Uh, just uh, just finding my way through everything, and um, you know, uh, I wanted to ask you just to get some clarity. I, and you know, I, I had a great hang with Mike Theodore. The guy is just legendary, and um, oh yeah. And you know, and and there was a there was a drummer. I don't think you probably know him. His name was Bill Vitt. He uh, he was from Bay Area, but he actually moved down and worked with Don Costa a lot. Did a lot of demos, and but really more known for playing the Bay Area, and I asked him about when Motown moved, and he said he worked for these guys called the Paris Brothers, and um, he did a lot of work for them, and, and he mentioned, it was around 68, I can't remember the exact year Motown decided to pick up and move, but, um, you know, they said, uh, you know, Motown's moving down here, and, and, and Bill was ready to go back to the West, to this to San Francisco, but he's, he was really psyched because... He was a big James Jamerson fan and, you know, all the cats he played with. And, um, but then he said it turned out that Jamerson wound up living in a hotel. Motown never really took care of him. Um, but the, and we, we touched on that in the, in the first interview. But the thing that was revelatory to me is that he said that, that he didn't know if this was true or not, but that they opened a white section of Motown. And the first artist that they signed was Pat Boone. And I've seen a lot of guys like um, Tom Clay, and I, I've been noticing a lot of, of artists that were definitely not in the soul and R&D tradition, but more folk artists who wound up on the Motown label in the early 70s. And I was wondering if there was ac some accuracy or truth to the idea that they opened a, a white section of Motown. I don't think they did. I mean, uh, Barry's, uh, his vision was the sound of young America, and he hired the people regardless of the color, Bernie Ellis uh, being one of the people and some of the other folks. So I think he was just just doing music where there wasn't a whole a separate thing when he had a few white white artists in there. It was just like we're Earth, you know. They, uh, he, that was the same thing as, as everybody uh, else with the label. That's, that's what I uh, felt about it. Um, like, uh, it... it do you looking back on it? I mean, when RCA and uh, and those other labels, you know, obviously you were just trying to sing for your supper. But um, do you think that it was? How do you think it, Detroit would have? It's it's hard to say this, but if they had actually come there and started, uh, they opened their own record companies up there. How would it have affected the city of Detroit, um, especially the? Um, the economy. Well, well, it, it would really have uh, affected the city, but you know, Barry had the key Funk uh, Brothers under contract. The only ones that weren't under contract to Motown were me and Bob Babbitt, and and, uh, and and so that that whole scenario where RCA and Columbia and everybody they saw the success of Motown, and that made it easier for producers in Detroit like me and Mike to get deals because the Detroit sound was becoming very successful. But then they figured out they couldn't get the guys, you know, and, and that that's because Barry had uh, the Funk Brothers under contract. So that's when the labels uh, decided not to do that, you know. So that, that if, if if that had been different, and uh, and Barry didn't have the guys under contract, and uh, it would have been like Mo West because I worked at Mo West too there. Uh, it was all uh, all the studio guys, and even though they paid me union scale and a half. Motown never had a lot on my time. I worked for everybody, but it wasn't the same with the Funk Brothers, you know, per se. You know, I was probably the only Funk Brother in Babbitt that that uh, uh, were free agents, you know. And it came to a point where even in Detroit, you know, I was doing a lot of sessions for Holland Dozier and Holland at night, and, 
Barry Balk uh, works for Motown, and uh, uh, he called me down to the offices downtown, and he says, well, he says, you know, uh, you're doing all these sessions for us and everything, and uh, we don't want you working for Holland Dozier and Holland. And I told Harry, I says, you got me mixed up with those guys you got under this uh, con contractual situation and this escrow program, whatever that deal was. I says, I'm not one of those guys. And he says, well, <laughs> keep working for them. You know, he says, if you keep working for them, he says, well, we won't call you. I says, don't call me. It's a free country. And I slammed the door and walked out. So I was on timeout for about two weeks. And I could probably see Norman Whitfield back there stewing because I'm sure he fixed it because within two weeks, I was doing double sessions at Motown every day, and no one ever said a word about me working for anybody else. Not a word. So, you know, the idea that, like, okay, so Barry had, you and you and Theodore were three agents and were wreaking havoc all over the place. Honestly, I... We were signed to Sussex. We were, I was an artist and we were producers signed to Sussex and we were on a salary. Right, and I mean, you, but I just, I, I just want to talk to the audience that's going to hear this or hearing it now or going to hear it later. I mean, some of the dudes that you found, Jonathan Round, for instance, I mean, these are just the most mere, obviously Rodriguez has been, become a pop icon, but I mean, you, re you really had like free reign on talent and stuff, and I'm just, so he, Barry kept the Funk Brothers, Jamerson, Pistol, those guys, he kept them under contract, but did not, so they were obligated essentially uh, they, they, I mean, they could obviously do cuts. That, you talked about those sessions at four in the morning when Barry's lawyer would show up and be like, "What do you got?" He's like, "You're cool, you're cool." But I mean, when they moved to LA, what did he, Barry was like, oh, "Okay, you're still under under my thumb," and 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 they, um, I mean, he put them up in a hotel. I mean, he didn't, they didn't get treated well at all. None of the Funk Brothers moved to LA. Not as, not as the Funk Brothers. No, I was the only one out there. Period. I mean, Earl was out there a little bit, but he was working on the road and stuff. And then Jamerson came out there, and uh, and I, I had a chance to do a few sessions. But I was already out there for a year before Jamerson got out there. And then you know I, I was at Mo West. You know, and Jamerson had had a few sessions. I had sessions. But uh, the first day I moved out to L.A. and I let Motown know I was in town, uh, they called me for a session. And they had uh, tracking studios downstairs, and they had overdub studios upstairs. So anyways, I started this session at 10 a.m. in the morning, and that session didn't get done till 4 a.m. the next day. They were oh. bouncing me upstairs and downstairs. <laughs> You're getting so, scale and a half, dude. You were raking. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very good because I was working for everybody. And then, uh, then they had a situation where uh, the contractor out there... Uh, called me and says, well, uh, we want you to do this show with the Jackson 5. I says, okay. Uh, ben Barrett, I think is his name. No, you told me this story. They, the, the, guy, yeah, the guy left her in the whistle, and you're like, I don't know about that. They're like, but you're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you came in and worked it out. Yeah. We pay you scale on the app, so I had a Michael in it, too. So well, we got through it. That's the way I look at it. You know, I just played with Stryden with a six-piece orchestra the week before. So, you know. Hello? Yeah, no, I'll, I, you know, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. Um, I want, okay. I'm want i going to put this in for you, and then uh, we can come back and reflect on it, okay? Okay, okay. But going back and forth, thank God Kevin Russell. Thank you, Jake, for bringing up the name Joe Podorsic, because Joe and I, we were in touch last night again. We've been in touch all these years since 1958, when I went to the uh, Capitol School of Music on Grand River in downtown Detroit with my dad. I was just going on 10 years of age, and I had this just horrible, anti-musical, um, unplayable <laughs> old uh, Epiphone guitar that my dad picked up for me for $5, um, because I was begging to, to try to uh, unleash this rhythm and blues soul music that I was so um, captured by, so... Uh, uh, wallowing in back in that era when Little Richard and, and certainly Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and, and Jerry B. Lewis, I mean, are you kidding me? When these guys unleashed this powerful, authoritative, emotional, defiant, rebellious, outrageous, noisy, sexy music upon an unsuspecting semi-Caucasian public, I mean, I was absolutely hooked. You can probably tell by my choice of verbiage how excited I was then and how excited I remain today. 
But yes, Joe Podorsik was in the hallowed cauldrons of the Motown Hitsville, USA, in Detroit, with the gods. It was Earl... The Lord Gate of Music, the Funk Brothers. So that connection drives me to this very day, 60 years later. All right, Mr. Coffey, you want to take a gander at who that is? Oh, that's Ted Nugent. One for one, baby. All the time. Yeah, I used to go to Capitol Music all the time, and Joe and I went to high school together. Okay, because I know, I just, yeah, I just want to, so wait, hold on, I mean, Capitol Music, can you take us through what that was? Capitol Music was a music Sessions down here. 
and he gave me a figure, and I said, you don't have enough money, Jerry, uh, to hire me down here. I <laughs> enough money. I said, i got to tell you the truth. Between Motown and Allen Dozier and Allen and doing the dramatics and doing Wilson Pickett and Muscle Shows and all this other stuff, I said, you don't have enough money to hire me to come down there and just work for Atlanta. That, again, that was in the studio uh, uh, sure. setting. It, it, you, in terms of being a road dog, you've never, ever, ever, ever gone on the road. No, no, I don't do that. I, I just, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was working, first of all, I was doing uh, like 18 sessions a week here in Detroit, and I did 18 sessions a week in L.A. at three hours a session. But here I was also doing that, and I was playing at... Uh, Maury Baker's Lounge doing jazz and funk three nights a week and all this other stuff and I was also recording at United for different acts so I had a full plate and I was making good money and I was enjoying myself and uh, and I was really learning how to play the guitar in front of audiences that weren't dancing. That was a big deal. They were listening. You know it's funny because I do both man. Isn't there room for both? Well back then there wasn't because I came out of uh, uh, top 40 bands right. were playing in the bars and people would uh, get drunk and throw each other through windows and shit and they'd be that was that was the whole deal <laughs> you know, they weren't listening to the music per se right so uh when i went and sat in with uh lyman woodard and melvin davis at the frolic it was a small black club and there were no dance floor and people were just in there listening to the music. I was really amazed. And Don Davis was playing with them. And Don says, I'm leaving the gig. Why don't you sit in? I sat in, and the people really liked me. So Lyman Woodard offered me the gig with him and Melvis. It was first George McGregor, then it was Melvin Davis on drums. And I just played there four nights a week, and it was great, man. We were just sitting down back in the corner there. We were playing jazz and funk and everything else, and the people were listening. It was amazing. Talking to Dennis Coffey, one of the most humble geniuses in, in music history. I want to read, did you, I don't know if you ever worked with Don Randy at all, piano player. Um, I met him, but never worked with him. I met him out in L.A. He worked in the Big Potato, I think, when I lived out there. But yeah, but like, you said, but like you said, L.A. was a restaurant town, not a bar town. That was one of the few places. Really? Well, you said that. I mean, you, 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 I mean, yeah. it wasn't really a lot place like unlike Maury Baker's in, in Detroit, which was definitely more of a, a live club scene. But I want to read. Yeah. You, I want to read you the story from our interview that I did with him. Uh, this is after Motown moved out to to L.A. and I, I don't expect you to know it, but I do want you to just riff on it. He goes, okay. Barry Gordy heard some of the tracks we were doing for Phil Spector. He sent out one of his big name acts for a recording date. Spector did. On this date, I was hired by H.B. Barnum to be the piano player. Earl Palmer was on drums, and James Jamerson was on bass. When we finish the date, this guy opens up a briefcase, and it's loaded with cash, and he starts paying the musicians. I said, what are you doing? He said, this is how we do it in the joint. I said, you can't do that no more. You need to have a union contract. All of a sudden, these two big black arms come around and hug me. It's James Jamerson, and he's saying... Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and I mean, obviously, you were—you know—you were a union uh, member. I would assume you were part of the union in Detroit. Um, but did, was was—I mean, was was there something? It appears to me, based on that story, it appears to me that um, a lot of times sessions that were done by. Um, Artists who didn't know how to advocate for themselves were less educated or maybe were just taken advantage of. It was just paid in cash. And what Randy was saying was, you know, keep the briefcases away. You know, this is union stuff now. And that's why Jamerson was happy about it because he had been ripped off the whole time. Um, I, wanted to I don't think, you know, for, for we, here in Detroit, most of the sessions were union sessions. But before Motown, back in the days of Golden World and stuff like that, they weren't exactly union sessions. But we got paid in cash, and we got paid fairly, you know, at that point. But if it wasn't for the union, we wouldn't have that scale thing happen. I'm still a member of the Musicians Union. They were the ones that made sure that we had a pension fund. They were the ones that made sure that we did get union scale. And so that whole thing just came around. But in the earlier days, it wasn't really there, you know. Can I ask so you, pay, yeah. I mean, taking yourself out of the equation, because 
like you told Wexler, you know, you don't have enough money, or you told, yeah. you know, you, you say, this is free country, I'm not working for, like you didn't take any guff, but there, no. did, did you know, of, you said you were paid fairly, but did you know of, uh, not necessarily a golden world, but in the days of pre-union when it was cash only, was there, um, were there issues with people getting paid? No, because we knew, uh, and the guys, uh, you had different producers in town. You had producers coming in from out of town, you know, and they would write us a check, or, or uh, with Motown and Gold, Motown, we went downtown and got our checks at Motown. But, uh, and then sometimes our checks, if it was a company, if somebody came in and recorded from out of town uh, a union session, then we would go to the union to pick up the check when the money came through. You know, so that that's kind of how that worked. But in the early days, I'm talking early '60s. Right. You know, it almost like every record store had a little studio in the back, and because of the success of Motown, we were getting paid cash money to do these sessions, and uh, it was it was fair. I mean, whatever you know, as it started out. I mean, early on, it was uh, whatever the money was. We were working for Harry Balk and stuff. I mean, but but it was you know, and we just got paid, or we got a check. It wasn't always cash. But we got paid at the end of the session. They just wrote us out. You know, I remember producers coming in from around or wherever, and they brought their checkbook to the session, and we got done doing a session, and they either gave us cash or they wrote out a check. Wow. We were fine. You know, all that time, uh, I think I just got stiffed twice in all that time. I can't even remember who stiffed me. But in all that time, it was only twice I got stiffed for a session. Every other time I got paid. Which, by the way, could you just drop some names of the record stores that had studios in them that you used to record in? Oh, God. Uh, I don't even know the names. Well, You're just talking about, though, like it was like, because I remember when they opened, I think, not Satellite, but Stax Records, uh, the one contention for Cropper, his sister wanted to have a record store in the front. So there was always, there was, so I mean, like, but this was, these were actual stores where you'd go buy vinyl, but in the back there'd be a recording studio where you would make records. Yeah, yeah, these were actual just record stores and they had a little studio in the back, especially in Livernois, you know, in Detroit, in that area, where people would buy, you know, records there and then they had a back room where, where you'd go in and you could uh, make make some recordings, you know, they'd have some kind of uh, studio set up back there. How do you spell Livernois? Yeah, uh, L-I-V-E-R, uh, I don't know if it's N O I S E something like that. You probably if you go uh, Google it. No, you know it's funny you because you hear so many times like you and Mike talk about these names of places and I'm like, I think I hear the pronunciation, but you could type whatever you think into Google. It's not necessarily going to recognize it. You know, it's unbelievable how many yeah, yeah. you know interesting names there are. Um, you know, I, I, I putting your producer hat on for a minute, especially because like I mean, I I really I, I've talked to a lot of producers who just are straight producers and, and, and one of their what they consider to be their talents is that the artist um, has this you know this concept that they can always do you know a better take right like whatever they did they can always do it better and at a certain point um, the producers they hear something that is just exactly what they need and they say no you're done it's perfect you're fine and that and I wanted to ask you about like being that you were somebody who went in and played parts to songs for the most part. Obviously, you could stretch out if it was your own album, but you really knew how to play to serve the song. Could you talk about being a producer and sort of having to get other artists who may not have, you know, maybe were only wearing the artist hat to 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 back off and to realize that and realize that what they did was just perfect and it just let it go and let's move on. Well, well, you know, uh, how we first learned how to produce is Mike Theodore and I uh, uh, were given a key to Tara Sherman's studio by Ralph Tarana. He gave us keys in an office in his studio. So what that meant is that at night when the studio wasn't booked, we were free because Mike used to do sound engineering and I did the arrangements to play guitar in the rhythm section. So we would bring all our bar band friends and all talent that we found in Detroit and we would go record them and make demos of them over at Terra Sherma. Uh, we'd start the session at 3 a.m. in the morning when all the people got off of work. Oh, this is That's unbelievable. how to produce. So, okay, so talk about how you, what the, what was the learning curve? Could you talk about an experience that was really a learning experience for you at that time? Well, well the whole idea is, uh, I think, 
earlier than that, Milan Bogdan was an engineer. He also ended up a great engineer in Nashville and stuff. So he told me one day, he says, you know, he says, you're telling everybody what to play in here and helping them get the sound. And this was acoustic guitar stuff on some folky group that I was involved with, you know, that I was involved to play on the session. Right, right. And I started taking more of the role of the producer because they needed help. He says, you're already doing it. So you ought to, you know, that's what you should start, continue doing. He says, you know, just doing that stuff. And then Mike Theodore and I, you know, got together and we started off as partners as arrangers. People would hire us to do, uh, the first session we did was, uh, 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 this guy had a, a song he wanted to do was one of the labels in New York and he wanted a full orchestra. So me and Mike Theodore became partners and we wrote horns and strings and the whole deal and everybody was happy with it, so that's how that piece of it started, with the arrangement piece. And then gradually, <clears throat> we went from that, uh, when we produced my first record, and then we produced Rodriguez, and, uh, and Clarence Avon was the key to all this stuff, because he finally signed us as producers and gave us a salary, and we brought new acts like the Gallery and everybody in the Sussex, and that's how that whole thing started. I just want to be clear, what, the cat's name that went to Nashville, what was his name? Went to Nashville. No, the, the producer, the guy that was the producing when you, at, at the, you said there was a guy who, who kind of lent you that advice. He goes, you're already doing it. You just, oh, yeah, that was my, Mylon Bogdan. Yeah, Mylon Bogdan, right. So I just missed that. Can you, what exactly, you were telling people what to play and he was saying keep doing that or was he letting, saying let them? He just, he says, he says, because I was going in the studio and listening to the playback and said, no, you can change this and change that. And all that stuff. So he said, you're already doing it. So he said, you should just do more of it. He encouraged me to do that. What were you, at that time, it, I mean, I know it depended basically on the genre, although I, I mean, you said, like, I mean, were genres really evident? Were, you, were labels like something that were brought to the forefront in terms of how you would speak about the music? Because it just seemed like, I understand that, you know, the, the evolution versus some folk trio versus Motown, it's very different sounding music, but like when you were there listening to playback, what were you, were there certain types of differences based on the genre of music that you were producing? Well, it depends on who the customer was. If it was a record label and they had a group, uh, and the group had their own style and they wanted that, we just tried to get that done uh, on schedule and on budget so that everybody was happy. As far as style, I mean, I just did a thing a couple of years ago called the Cambodian Space Project I did on my own with a group, and uh, the guitar player was from Tasmania and the lead singer was from Cambodia. And the whole album was in Cambodia. Oh, so we put it together for uh, this uh, investor that liked the group, and he tried to got this group in Cambodia that I'd like you to produce. They, they told me, you know, so I did it. And so I did him a budget and a pr proposal, put it all together, and, uh, and we got it done. And he was happy with it, and we got it done. Dennis, I mean, early on, uh, you have to forgive me, uh, the studio that that um, you and Mike were allowed to use after hours. What was the name of it? Tara Sherma. Tara Sherma. And you would recruit cats. Who were, you, who were the cats that, like, for instance, like, in L.A., you had, through Lou Adler and Peter Asher, I mean, they put together the section with Lee Sklar and Russ Conkle yeah. and Cooch and and, Dan, and Craig Dergy and those, all those guys, great friends of mine. But were you, I'd love to know who you were pulling out of those clubs. I mean, was it just... Well, not even people that had necessarily had any longevity, but who were, did you eventually have a, a band like that? Well, what I did is, Mike and I, is we would pull some of the Motown cats. You know, we couldn't get Jamerson, but Bob Babbitt we could certainly get. And then we'd use Uriel and Pistol, the two Motown drummers. And on Scorpio, that's Earl Van Dyke playing a piano. I mean, so, and I, I met uh, Eddie Willis. We used him on guitar all the time. He played at Motown. Uh... Motown, there was only a few that, you know, like Robert White and Joe Messina and those guys, you know, uh, and Earl Van Dyke generally couldn't work for anybody else, nor could Jamerson, but Babbitt certainly could and a lot of other people. So we had, and Don Davis used to play guitar, so we had 
our own rhythm sections of these guys that we would put together if it was a vocal group and if it was a self contained group like Rare Earth you know we would but the first Rare Earth album we did was I played guitar on the thing because their guitar player got lost and couldn't find his way to the studio so I had to play guitar on it you know I'm always surprised that this didn't happen more often before GPS I don't know how people find their way around with that stuff man I don't know man but you know that's what we did and as far as the artists go it's a collaboration you don't boss the artists around and say you know they know you have to collaborate with an artist they know when they've done their best you know as long as the thing it's about the feel you know the feel is what rules it's not about perfect intonation all the time or perfect notes you know I've done sometimes I've done a studio thing where I play guitar on a song even on my own stuff and I get it in the first take and the feel's just there then I say fine let's go on to the next song that's just unbelievable I mean the guy do you remember who the cat was that asked you to put the full orchestra on the album from New York oh boy I think his name might have been Steve Manchin wow what about this cat Gordon Staples who was that cat okay Gordon Staples was a very fine violinist he was a concert master for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and his wife Dee Staples also was in that band and his son Bernard his wife retired and Gordon passed away so Bernard is playing with the symphony now so our idea was when we did strings is we would hire Gordon to help us with any to make sure we wrote what needed to be written you know and pretty much made him the leader of the section so he could help us not only we wrote all the stuff out but he would give us that extra thing and he said you know what the Boeing technique for this thing you might want to do that stuff like that so that's who Gordon was he was like he had Stradivarius man this guy was amazing jeez I mean because when I listen back to some of that 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 album or at least a couple tracks like I mean where did how did you fit was it all like was your guitar didn't seem like your guitar was that prevalent in the mix it was just very very string oriented now which song which one is that now the, the string thing oh uh, the strung out yeah strung out well, it, it, it was just I listened to one track and I was like having a hard time finding where I mean I guess what I'm trying to say is like how big an orchestra did he bring into the studio how many cats were in there at one time I wonder about it today. Now, I don't know. I think it's the biggest um, I've learned over time. It has really nothing to do with analog versus digital recording, but it has everything to do with what you talked about. Was this urgent? I always wondered why does the music sound? Why is there an urgency and a pulse to the to this music? And I'm not just talking about the Motown music. I'm just talking about any of the major studio albums that were cut on any of the labels. In, in the bag of time that I love, which is the late 60s and early 70s, why why was it so urgent? And obviously there was the human component to it. They hadn't outsourced uh, human rhythm to drum machines and stuff, but on top of that, it was this, what you just talked about, where the expectation was you needed to crank. I think you said you needed to do one song in three hours at Motown, is that right? No, or, no we did one song an hour. One song an hour, yeah. which, which means... The idea was the Funk Brothers, we were playing together at the same time. Right. We would bounce ideas off of each other. So that's what you hear is the the result of the group was better than any one of us could have played by ourselves. Uh. It was teamwork. People don't realize that. 
the Funk Brothers worked together as a team. We were all friends. We all worked together to get the job done. And we were all bouncing stuff off each other. So that uh, that live, vibrant sound, there was no click track in that stuff. We just count it off and go. That's what you're hearing is real musicians playing together, making music. Um, this sort of swings back to what I... Bef what I uh, what we were talking about before, but um, obviously you are still a member of the musicians' union. But yeah. how did um, I don't know? What's the what, I mean? How come that became a, a, a loss? How come you, not even I don't want to talk about unions in general, but it's so common sense to me. Bob Cranshaw, the great bass player, who um, on top of everything else. You know, did Sesame Street, played with Sonny Rollins, and was on Lee Morgan's album, The Sidewinder, which is really one of the first albums to be considered where the bass was being used not just for backbeat, but also for uh, it's just a very seminal album. And, and, and he, towards the end of his life, he just was adamant about educating young, younger cats about the need to be in the union. And uh, sure. everybody was in the union back then. Everyone I talk to now or I hang out with, I don't care if it's Gadsden or Keltner or you, I mean, it, it, it was all, it was a common sense, I'm just, how do you feel? Well, also, we, I, I get a pension from the musician union, and so are the other cats that played in all that stuff, that was a whole thing that the union did for us, not only union scale, but at the end of the day, all these records I played on that are covered under union contract, resulted in me getting the pension every month from the union. I guess my question is, did it did the union uh, become a, a less attractive? Now again, you were working so much that essentially those dues every month were 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 you know nothing compared to what you were actually taking in. And obviously, in the long term, it was great. You get a pension, you still get royalties. But, well, but the, well, you don't get royalties as a as a side man. No, you get royalties. As or if you, or if you were, uh, if you were responsible for song creating the song, right? So if you're a writer, writer, you're yeah, right. Or, you know. So the, the whole idea was a uh, uh, union scale quarterly. As far as the union dues quarterly, it's like what forty-two dollars every three months. It's not a big deal. But there's also a work dues that was part of the union contract that went in there to feed the pension fund and all the other stuff. That was all part of the cost. Of recording a union sketch session. Do you find like younger cats? I, I just feel was it that the, the kind of the record industry just contracted so much that people said it wasn't and there weren't enough dates, so that's why it's not worth joining the, the union? I mean, do you feel how many younger cats do you really think that, oh, yeah, I'm members of the union? Well, here's the deal if you probably look at LA, Nashville, and you look at New York, you're going to find people in the musicians' union. I'm in the musicians' union now because you know it's just just what I do. I've, I've been in the union for you know almost 50 years now. I mean, but that that's kind of what you do. But nowadays, you don't have in a city like Detroit, you don't have sessions going on like that. You know, you got a few small groups doing a few things here and there and stuff, but you don't have those kind of sessions going on here. And, and the only places they're going on on a regular basis where they're all union and you've got studio guys actually making a living are Nashville and uh, LA and New York, you know. Other than that, in Detroit, you don't have those kind of sessions going on here like that. And it's bad, but there's no record companies here to do that. But the label I'm signed with, Mac Avenue Records, is here, you know, and that's great because they, the, you know, my album on, uh, you know, uh, that's out now, uh, down by the river is on Mac Avenue Detroit Music Factory and they have offices here and they have offices in LA. So at least there's one label here that's got a presence for the jazz thing, which is great. Do, um, can you talk about, I mean, you probably don't have enough hindsight on the new album yet, but um, when you listen to your playing, you know, obviously, you know, you play, I, I was, I was listening back to my interview with, with Danny Korchmar today from the section, and we were playing um, a, a song off um, a band that he was in called Joe Mama. This is before the section, and he's like, you know, when I listen to that, and that was from like the late 60s, he's like, it sounds like anxious and nervous and rushed, that solo, and you know, I feel like I've, I hope I've become a better player. And 
you know, we've talked about, you know, we've spanned a lot of your early career and you seem pretty grounded and probably just because you had all, all that experience in the studio. But when you listen to your sound today, how has it changed? Do you feel like you've, you're continuing to grow or, I mean, I, 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 well, yeah, I mean, if you, I, here, here's an example. My new album, I've got jazz standards, over that's and Moonbeam, Sun, right. Shadow of Your Smile, all that stuff. So so, so what's happened uh, is that I've matured as an artist, and I've always played jazz. I mean, I used to hang with Wes Montgomery, and I got to know him. Uh, I got to know Joe Pass out in L.A. and hang with those guys. So even when I was growing up in the 20s, I was playing. We did some jazz stuff with Lyman and Melvin and stuff. And so, you know, I was always playing jazz, but this is probably the first real jazz album that wasn't contemporary jazz. Uh, you know, where I have upright bass and we're doing swing and all this stuff is the one I have now. I mean, it's just a matter of, as an artist and everything, I'm still studying the guitar. I'm not done. I know. You know, I saw, I saw Segovia play when he was 92. <laughs> and I played with Les Paul when he was 92. You did? Yeah, oh I did. Oh, God. And, I, and I, I have an aunt, my aunt Alani could sit down at the piano at 95 and read Ragtime with no mistakes. <laughs> um, well, well I, you know, uh, you, you, why do you consider this your first? I mean, I just have, it's just so funny. I mean, I, I, any to me, any, any tune, I, I, I guess I just have a very loose definition of jazz or improvisation, but... I mean, you're talking about the American Songbook. This was really the first sure. album you did with with American Songbook tunes. That's why you consider yes. it a jazz album. And maybe it was it was somewhat acoustic with an upright bass. I don't know what kind of guitar yeah, you. Yeah, it, it's swing. It's swing, and I was using my L4 jazz guitar, the Gibson, the big L4 jazz box. Do you think that um, on this album, I'm just going to go out on a limb. You can riff back any way you want, but you know. I, I just saw, caught up with a, a buddy of mine, my peer group. He was playing a live show in San Rafael, California. He was doing all these Dylan tunes, Bob Dylan tunes, and he just turned them upside down and inside out. And when I listened to, uh, when I did interview George Porter, uh, the great bass player, you know, he would talk about pre-meters, they would take Stephen Stills tunes and just turn them upside down and inside out. Now, so for my question for you is, was your onus to play the standards like as close to the original as possible or did you want to put on your own did you want to did you want to put your own flair on those originals make them your own well, well here well see here's the deal with jazz players you play the melody of a song you know fairly close right. and it can be a little loose and then you improvise against the changes that's all it is so you're not you're not playing uh the melody to the song all the way through all you're doing is you're paying playing the head that's the tune you play it once you do solos, and then you come back to the head uh, at the end. I mean, that's basically the format that the, the jazz has uh, always done. And I never played the same solo twice. I couldn't remember it anyway. I, no, you're, you're, but you're so, I mean, dude, you never play the same song the same way once, you know, never. Right. It's just, I, don't. I never I never play the same solo. After I take a solo, it's a musical point in time, and it's gone, and I'm not even sure what the hell I do sometimes. Sometimes I got my eyes closed, and I'm on another level of consciousness, and stuff just comes out. And the bandstand, they had the guys look at me and say, "Where'd that come from?" And I said, "I have no idea." I did. That's exactly Terry. You, 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 people say how, from the Sons of Champlain. They said, "How, how did you do that, man?" And he's like, "I really have no idea." <laughs> and he's like, right. he's yeah. like, he's like, it's like, kind of like uh, Socrates. You, you have to know what you don't know. I mean, I think also it speaks to yeah. once you get to that point of having your rudiments so strong that you can sort of forget all of that on the bandstand. Yeah, you're in a different. You're in a different level of consciousness when you've got a good groove going and you're doing a solo and it just, whatever comes out, comes out and the band's right with me. I mean, if we go in a direction, they just jump on that because we're playing off of each other and away we go. I mean, it, it, it's fun because at the end of the tune, you've taken it each time you play that song and go somewhere else and that's good. I, I never give them charts. My, my guys, I give them chord sheets. You know, See, that's like Gene. That's like Gene Page. Right. You do it. I, I thank. I hope you live till you're 250 years old, man. I mean, this is like absolutely essential um, because I mean, for whatever reason, it, for, I guess it's because we have the technology. But I mean, people will spend. You had an hour to cut a tune. People will spend 45 minutes just to get a bass drum sound that they like. Now, I mean, the amount of like 
obsession with perfection is really, uh, and again, they don't, they're not worried about, they don't have time constraints, but I just feel like it, that's kind of the whole point of it is like you had, the companies knew they were paying you scale or scale and a half and it was their money. And so they expected you guys to be efficient with your time and productive with your time. And you know, then, Mike, Mike Theodore and I, the, the, the common budget back then for an album was like 50 grand. And Mike Theodore and I had that budget to work with, and, and uh, when we had a project, and the label believed in the project, just like Rodriguez, same thing, but with Rodriguez, he was so nervous we had to take him in the studio first with his guitar and do four songs <laughs> and build the band around him, and then we could start bringing him in with the band. But we always came in on time, with a quality piece the label liked, and it was always within the budget. That was our job as producers to do. I got one more, uh, you're one for one today on the name of that voice. I got one more for you, um, and then uh, come back and break it down. Uh, later than those two clubs. It was uh, 
I'm trying to think. I think it was on. Uh, I know it was in Detroit. I think it was on Dexter. It was called the Minor Key, and I don't think they served alcohol. That was the same kind of club as those other two, but it was a bigger club, and people could stay late at night. They weren't serving alcohol. And I saw Kenny Burrell there. I think I saw uh, uh, some of the other guys. Uh, you know, her, uh, some of the jazz guys. You, you see, know, you see West there. You saw West there. No, I used to see Wes at the Drone Lounge on Dexter, and I used to sit right in front of him. We'd keep coming in here for a week, and I'd go there every night, and I'd sit right in front of him, and I got to know Wes. I used to hang out with him and listen to him play and everything. He's an amazing guy, real nice guy. So I, I just know that coffee was not, there's, I mean, so, but you, but, but you knew, when you say they were before your time, it just means that yeah. you couldn't, you couldn't necessarily get there. You didn't have a car, but you, were you hip to those places? Did you know what was going on there? I, I didn't know because I, I, you just hear, like I say, I would go to a music store. Some of the older musicians sometimes would talk about it. But I was uh, like in high school. You know, I was like 12 or 13 years old or something. So it was not in my world, that kind of stuff. You know, I'd love you to um, talk to the audience about, could you just relay, last time you talked about I think Wes broke one of the frets on his guitar, broke one of the strings, and he had to like play. He was just doing something. He played right through it. But no, Wes didn't break a string. Wes was taking a solo, and he heard something in his head, and there wasn't enough frets on the guitar to accommodate his ideas, so he went right off the end of the neck <laughs> because those those last few notes he heard in his head there weren't enough frets. On <laughs> okay, the I don't. I totally. That was. That's my, can you, can you, not necessarily even a, a sort of notes in the head technique thing, but could you just talk about, um, uh, give me a good Joe Pass story? Uh, Joe Pass, uh, I think the funniest story is I used to go over his house, you know, and I took a few lessons from Joe and everything, is that uh, he was playing with Ella Fitzgerald and she came to Detroit. So I went to see Ella and then I, I got, I got, uh, let, uh, got a message backstage to Joe to see if I could go back there and meet Ella Fitzgerald. So Joe passed, the jokester that he is with his big cigar, <laughs> he introduces he introduces me to Ella Fitzgerald as a disco kid. <laughs> the look she gave him was priceless. So this was this was upon your return to Detroit after LA? Yes. 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 That the disco kid. Yeah, but Joe Pass was such a phenomenal player. He was another one, you know, him and Wes and all those guys. I mean, you know, back in the day you had uh, Tal Farlow and all these guitarists, and I used to listen to all of them, and even Les Paul back then. They were all just amazing jazz guitarists. You know, these guys could all play stuff, so you could learn from all those guys. And Kenny Burrell. Well, no, I mean, I did, I'm not sure. Are you hip to the cat Eddie Duran? Eddie Duran. I mean, he was part of the Manny Durams and Jaders group, but he was a West Coast guy. But I have this album that I can't stop listening to um, with Vince Guaraldi, so it's just piano, bass, and guitar. Yeah, yeah. Did, 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 I know you were you were pretty hooked up with Maury Baker. You'd have those ferocious trios, uh, but they always included a drummer. Did you ever find yourself wanting to or in a trio, drummerless trio? I never did, no, except uh, when I played at the Iridium oh, dear. Uh, in oh. New York, and they were supposed to have a drummer there, but they never had a drummer, so I had to do Scorpio on all my stuff with uh, keyboards, uh, with, with the Les Paul group, you know, with, uh, so we had rhythm guitar and upright bass and lead guitar and keyboards, and so I had to do... <laughs> Scorpio and all that stuff without a drummer. That was interesting. Okay, I just really want, I, you say interesting. I, I need to know the fun, so knowing that you weren't expecting it going, you probably found out two, five minutes before the gig, the drummer wasn't coming. Yes. So how, how did you hold that together knowing that it is predicated, so much of that is predicated on, on having the foundation of, 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 of drum kit rhythm? Well, but it's like anything else, you know, the guitar is just as good at rhythm as it is at lead. Right. I mean, you can play good rhythm on guitar, so, uh, and I had a rhythm guitar in it anyways. So the whole thing... Fine, what else you gotta do? You just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, the Les Paul group? Who was in the group? Uh, that was uh, uh, Lou Paul, I think. Was he? Uh, right. He was the rhythm guitar player with Les Paul, and then they had uh, this girl uh, uh, very, uh, was playing upright bass, and they had a keyboard player. I can't uh, remember the name. That was quite some time ago, but it was fun. You know, it's, a, it's like when you have a job to do, uh, whether you're in the studio or whether you're in a club, uh, if something comes up that's not exactly a perfect condition, the show must go on. So you just do the best you can with what you got. Um, before I let you go, Dennis Coffey, uh, <clears throat> I'm just going to read this from Mike Theodore. And I, I, one day I hope that uh, I'll ever find any of this stuff. But to me, I just find it when you teamed up and started a company. Um, I just want to read off what he said here and, and ask you about, because this is really where music lies for me. It's The essence of it is that, um, you know, Norman Granz would say something to the effect, uh, you know, I don't care if this Oscar Peterson album sells 10 copies, it's what my label, uh, Pablo, or, you know, uh, you know, whatever, it's what my label stands for. Um, okay. okay, and so uh, this kind of, um, I just want to know what your what you guys were thinking, and this is what he this is what Mike said. He goes, we had Sussex at the time, and there was a group called Mutsy. There was a group called right. the Assemblage I had done for Westbound. Yep. These were all groups from the right. '60s psychedelic time when uh, yeah. the SRC Bob Seger were there. There was a group called Yukon that came out of Ontario, and a group called Amish. Uh, this is the kind of music the labels couldn't promote adequately. I mean, what were you guys thinking? What, out of any, take one of those groups, you were going across the border, or these guys were coming to Detroit. How did you even find these cats? Uh, you know what, I think the, the manager of the, a couple of the Canadian groups contacted us, uh, and, and Mike kind of uh, put that together. But uh, as far as uh, Mutsy, uh, uh, his dad uh, ran this bar downtown, which is kind of a dubious bar with a lot of hookers in it. So anyway, <laughs> Wait, what was the name of the bar? Jeez, uh, I can't think of the name. It was just it was just called the dubious. Oh, Anderson's, Anna, Anderson's Gardens. <laughs> Anderson's Gardens. So his dad. So anyways, yeah. Uh, Mutsy, I think, somehow approached us, and he had cut a demo because his sister played. Uh, and his brother played bass and his sister played keyboard and he had another guy that was a drummer. And Muncy was the guy that, uh, he was doing a, a fuzz tone thing. It was, you know, when rock started going into that more progressive thing with the fuzz tone guitar and everything, and, uh, and I said, what, what is that sound? Because that's the first time I heard a real fuzz tone guitar. I didn't know what it was. And Mutsy showed me, you know, he had this tone bender. He said, well, you do this. And he says, you turn it on, let the battery wear down a little bit so you get a mellower, a cleaner, distorted sound and so forth. So I learned that from him. But uh, uh, that was that group. And, and we did uh, we did that one album. But Sussex didn't know what to do with it, just like they didn't know what to do with Rodriguez. It's not that Clarence didn't try, but in, in the situation that he had, uh, sometimes you don't, uh, I mean, the Scorpio thing took off and, uh, and the gallery took off. And then uh, Buddha got irritated with Clarence for, because uh, the gallery was pop, bubblegum. He said, you guys, we didn't hire you guys to do that. And Clarence said, well, I'll do what I want. <laughs> that's right. You can't so win. You can't gallery. win. You can't, you can't win for, I mean, you can't do it. You can't win for trying. I mean, it's like you, you do bubblegum stuff. They don't like it. Then you do something like Muncie. They I mean, it's just like. Well, the gallery sold, you know, with Jim Golden. We first saw him and his buddy playing in a bar on Eight Mile, just two guitars singing it, and I, the, the parking lot was packed. And I said to Mike, what's going on there? <laughs> and there was Jim Golden, another guy, that he's singing uh, what he does, you know, nice to be with you and all that stuff, and the place is packed. So that's how we ended up getting him together. Um, so with the uh, Detroit Guitar Band, would there be a budget on for Sussex for you guys to go out and tour, or did you just not even want to? Tour? Did, would you go and tour and promote the album? That's that wasn't what Sussex did. Exactly. So so I know, so that, that so I knew that was going to be your answer because yeah. so like with your new album today, uh, I, I also always find it interesting. I, I felt like 
with so not necessarily Sussex, but you know, with Capital. I mean, there you know, James Taylor uh, reprised. They, uh, there was never any. How would you? How would you expect to gain? Not like that you were looking necessarily to gain. Obviously, everybody wants to get a hit, but I mean, sure. the hit. The hit would only come via the radio with you guys because you were not taking it to the, to the people per se. Yeah, that, that's that's how it was back in the day. You know, you got hit records on the radio, and some of the groups tour, but but the labels, unless like Motown had a management arm that uh, also managed their groups, and so they had road managers and they had that booking agent thing and everything. But but the big labels, at least the ones like Sussex, didn't have anything like that. You know, so uh, I went out, uh, when I was signed to Strut Records in 2011, uh, they were in Europe, and I was signed to uh, the booking agency, was the name of the agency that was tied into this thing, so I went out and toured. You know, I did, uh, uh, I did the East Coast, I did, uh, I did Bonnaroo, I did South by Southwest, and I played in London and Paris a couple times, so, uh, you know, I was out there doing it. You know, but uh, then at the end of the day, it just uh, it just didn't work out to be you know that uh, that profitable. You know, when you first go out that first time, you know, you don't make that much money. You're supporting the album, and you go. You know, we had a, a eight passenger van we were riding around with, and all that stuff. So it's still going on. I mean, if it, to make if it makes you feel, I mean, it's still going on today. I mean, that's that's how cats. Sure. You know, I, I, I mean, was there was there a definitive uh, track or two that did um, take off on regional radio for you? Well, you know what happened was uh, I did the Evolution album, okay, and Clarence Avon heard Scorpio a year before it became a hit and told Clarence Avon, that's the hit on that record. Quincy heard that already. Wait, hold on. You just said wait, Avon heard it and said, said it to Quincy? No, no, Quincy Jones heard that. Quincy heard it. Yeah, and Clarence played that for Quincy. And Quincy thought it was a great album. And he says, he pointed out to Clarence, he says, Scorpio will be the hit off this record. Wow. That was a year before it became a hit. Holy cow. But he knew it. He heard, Quincy heard that. Um, did you play the 20 grand? Yeah, I played, uh, I played there back on different artists. And also the 20 grand... Uh, Frantic Ernie had a dance because the other half of the 20 grand was like a, 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 a big hall where they had the teenage dance dances in that and they had a metal detector that you came in and you played in there so I played some dance house in, in the back side of the 20 grand and in the front side the lounge part uh, I played with Edwin Starr there in his band and I played with the Belvolettes in their band at the 20 grand because when I interviewed George Clinton, that's where he played a lot with Parliament Funkadelic, or at least maybe, you know, uh, when they moved out there. And Martha Reeves played there a lot. Yeah, yeah, I see. I just saw Martha the other day at this big uh, concert of colors we did. But uh, I played on George Clinton. I want to testify. I played on that record. Oh, you did? And I played, yeah, that's me and Eddie Willis playing guitar, and I want to testify. I recorded at United. <sighs> and I also played on some cuts on the, uh, woke up some cuts on the first Funkadelic album for George. <laughs> well, another uh, 65 minutes in the book, Dennis. I will send you, an, I might have to transcribe some of this uh, interview, but uh, it's right now, um, there's some pretty classic characters in this first book, and I, I'm looking to do a smorgasbord of musicians from not just regional, but, you know, all different types of cats that are almost ungenre. can't can't really put them into any one genre so um take a look at the content when you get it and uh if you're up if you're on board for it just sign that and get it back and it's really an honor all right we'll do it thank you bro have a beautiful day dennis all right you too okay bye bye, -bye. all right yeah bye. bye another one of the books with dennis coffee beautiful cat and an amazing musician who's been through it all We've got a bunch of interviews coming up next week here on Power Talk. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you next week. Nice to hear you, brother. Good to be here. Yeah, man. Hey, um, did you...